Introduction Say unto them, As I live, saith the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn ye, turn ye from your evil ways, for why will ye die, O house of Israel? Ezekiel 33, verse 11 It has been the astonishing wonder of many people, including myself, to read in the Holy Scriptures how few will be saved, and to see that the greatest part, even of those who are called, will be everlastingly shut out of the kingdom of heaven and will be tormented with the demons in eternal fire. The unsaved do not believe this when they read it, and therefore they must feel it. Those who do believe it are forced to cry out with Paul, O the depth of the riches both of the wisdom and knowledge of God! How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. Romans 11, verse 33. Nature itself teaches us all to lay the blame of evil works upon the doers, and therefore, when we see any awful thing done, a principle of justice provokes us to inquire after him who did it, so that the evil of the work may return the evil of shame upon the person who did the evil act. If we saw a man killed and cut in pieces along the road, we would immediately ask, Oh, who did this cruel deed? If the town was purposely set on fire, you would ask, What wicked wretch did that? In the same way, when we read that many souls will be miserable in hell forever, we must ask ourselves how this will happen and whose fault it is. Who is so cruel as to be the cause of such a thing as this? We will meet with few who will confess their own guilt. It is indeed confessed by all that Satan is the cause, but that does not resolve the doubt because he is not the main cause. He does not force people to sin, but tempts them to sin, leaving it to their own wills whether they will do it or not. He does not carry people into a tavern force open their mouths and pour in the drink. He does not force them to stay there so that they cannot go to God's service, nor does he force their hearts not to think holy thoughts. The choice, then, is between God himself and the sinner. One of them must necessarily be the main cause of all this misery, whoever it is, for there is no one else to blame it on, and God denies that he is to blame. He will not take it upon himself to be the cause of people's sin, and the wicked usually deny that they are to blame. They will not take it upon themselves, and this is the disagreement that is here guiding my text. The Lord complains of the people, and the people think it is God's fault. The same controversy is discussed in Ezekiel 18. They plainly say that the way of the Lord is not equal. Ezekiel 18.25. So here they say, If our transgressions and our sins be upon us, and we pine away in them, how should we then live? Ezekiel 33.10. It is as if they say, If we must die and be miserable, how can we help it? They speak as if it were not their fault, but God's. However, God, in our text, clears himself of it and tells them how they may help it if they want to. He persuades them to use the means, and if they will not be persuaded, he lets them know that it is their own fault. 
If this will not satisfy them, he will not refrain from punishing them. He will be the judge, and he will judge them according to their ways. They are not his judges or their own judges, for they lack authority, wisdom, and impartiality. Their criticism of God and quarreling with God will not help them or save them from the execution of that justice at which they murmur. The words of this verse, Ezekiel 33, verse 11, contain 1. God's clearing of himself from the blame of their destruction. He does not do this by rejecting his law that the wicked will die, nor by disallowing his judgment and execution according to that law, or giving them any hope that the law will not be executed. Rather, he does this by professing that it is not their death that he takes pleasure in, but their returning so that they may live, and he confirms this to them by his oath. Second, a specific exhortation to the wicked to return, wherein God not only commands, but also persuades and condescends to reason the case with them, even asking them why they will die. The direct hope of this exhortation is that they may turn and live. The secondary or reserved desire upon supposition that the first is not attained are these two. One, to convince them by the means that he used that it is not God's fault if they are miserable, and two, to convince them from their plain disobedience and rebellion in rejecting all his commands and exhortations that it is their own fault and that if they die, it will be because they willingly die. The substance of the text lies in the following observations. Principle 1. It is the unchangeable law of God that wicked people must turn or die. Principle 2. It is the promise of God that the wicked will live if they will simply turn. Principle 3. God takes pleasure in people's conversion and salvation, but not in their death or damnation. He would rather have them return and live than continue in their ways and die. Principle 4. This is a most certain truth that God has confirmed to them by his oath, because he does not want people to doubt this truth. Principle 5. The Lord reinforces his commands and exhortations to the wicked to turn. Principle 6. The Lord lowers himself to reason the case with unconverted sinners and to ask them why they will die. Principle 7. If the wicked will not turn after all this, it is not God's fault that they perish, but it is their own fault. Their own stubbornness and rebellion is the cause of their damnation. Therefore they die because they choose to die. They refuse to turn. Having introduced the text in these points, I will next briefly speak somewhat of each of them in order.